Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello everyone, and welcome to New Books in East Asia. My name is Ricarda, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I'm here to talk to Noelle Jafrida about her latest book, Separating Sheep from Goats, which was published by University of California Press in 2018. The book tells the fascinating history of collecting and exhibiting Chinese art through the story of the renowned curator and museum director, Sherman Lee. This book provides one of the first forays, really, into post-war North American collecting and exhibiting and carefully reconstructs the rise of the USA as the scholarly hub on Chinese art, in many ways displacing Europe's dominance in this area. As such, separating sheep from goats contributes hugely to the historiography of the field of East Asian art and gives us a sense of individuals and their contributions rather than institutions at large. Relying on extensive archival research, Nelda Frieda shines light on the so-called monumentsmen and namely their time in East Asia, which is much less known, and we'll be talking a lot about this during the podcast as well. We are also talking about Sherman Lee's unique role as curator and museum director, his relationship with the quote-unquote, old guard, if you like, of Harvard-educated scholars who came before him, um, as well as the need for connoisseurial approaches to art history and contextual uh, scholarship that is taking uh, the socioeconomic context in into account as well. So with this in mind, I shall leave you to the podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in East Asia. My name is Ricardo, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I'm here to talk to Noel Jafrida about separating sheep from goats, Shanley Lee and Chinese art collecting in post-war America, which was published in 2018 by University of California Press. Welcome to the show, Noel. Thank you. Now, as is tradition on the channel, I would like you to start out by telling our listeners a little bit about yourself and maybe also how you came to study and work on Chinese art. Well, this is a bit of a long story, but uh, when I was an undergraduate at Vassar College, I was an Asian studies major, and I took a lot of courses uh, in anthropology and politics and history, and just two art history courses on Chinese and Japanese art. Uh, I never um, took Western art or American art uh, as an undergraduate, and I spent the next 10 years in the music business. I worked for independent rock labels in the United States. Um, I was living in New York, um, North Carolina, Chicago. And when the music business changed, I returned home to Washington, D.C., where I grew up. And um, I spent a lot of time at the Freer-Sackler Galleries. (laughs) Um, And there are a lot of programs there Uh, that have professors from all over the country and even internationally that come to offer six-week programs um, for people in Washington, D.C. area. And I attended several of those um, and spent more and more time at the museum. 
And uh, eventually I asked one of the professors uh, for one of these classes, which was Jonathan Chaves and Stephen Addis, um, who work on uh, Japanese art and Chinese literature and poetry. You know, if I wanted to teach this stuff, what would I need to do? <laughs> and they said, oh, well, you know, you need to refresh your Chinese language because it had been 10 years. And um then uh, apply to graduate school and get a PhD. And I thought, okay. <laughs> uh, and so uh, I did that. And it was a time when there were a lot of exhibitions of Chinese art in the United States. It was um, the late 1990s when the Museum of Fine Arts Boston had its big um, painting show and also uh, another exhibition from Taiwan, Splendors of Imperial China, toward the United States as well. So it was a really very exciting time in Chinese art to, to go back to graduate school. Um, I, I did a, a MA and in, in Wisconsin with Julia Murray and then continued on to do my PhD at the University of Kansas, which has five Asian art historians, which was an incredible amount of, of riches, as well as being able to study with um, the Nelson Atkins Museum and the Spencer Museum of Art Collections. Um, and I pretty much committed to Chinese art pretty early on and uh, eventually um, became a specialist in Taoist visual culture and Chinese art history and collection. Excellent. And let's now talk about how you came to write this really lavishly and beautifully illustrated and highly informative book on the collector, curator, and connoisseur Sherman E. Lee and the broader uh, collecting and exhibition practice practices of Chinese art in post-war America. Maybe you could also frame this story by way of explaining the curious title of your book, Separating Sheep from Goats, and how this biblical quote reflects on Sherman Lee and the study and reception of Chinese art. Yes, it's a really good question about the title. I get asked that a lot. Um, well, I'll tell you that when I was working on this book, I was thinking about titles, and I was reading Sherman Lee's uh, first edition of A History of Far Eastern Art, which is his survey book that first came out in 1964. And there's a section on Sung Dynasty painting. And he was talking about the need to separate the sheep from the goats uh, to determine an actual uh, group of paintings that could be considered standards uh, for judging Sung Dynasty painting. And uh, he talked about separating the sheep from the goats. And immediately, as a Chinese art historian, I thought of the Zhao Mengfu painting, Sheep and Goat, which is in the Freer Gallery of Art, which is a collection I was very familiar with and still am. And I thought, oh, what, what, a, great, what a great connection to this famous Zhao Mengfu painting. That would be great. And I thought, okay, that I'll use that for the title. And then a couple weeks later, I'm Googling this phrase. <laughs> and I find that, in fact, it's much more famous as a quote from the Bible, um, where Matthew is talking about, I guess it's Matthew talking about Jesus separating the, the chosen from the condemned. Uh, and translating this into Chinese painting, the chosen would be those paintings that get to be Song Dynasty paintings, and the condemned are the ones that are deattributed and uh, put into later dynasties. And so this this phrase of Sherman Lee's um, really speaks to the idea that he could make references to Chinese painting for insiders, as well as use um, phrases and comparisons to European and American art and to 
religious Christian traditions um, and sort of speak to both sides of the street. Uh, And I think that's something that he did very successfully throughout his career. And I found that um, in studying him and, and tracing how he got into Asian art, I found it very interesting because a lot of the um, resonances he makes between European and American art and Chinese art um, really work in both directions. He was um, speaking to a European and American audience primarily, um, but as someone who's mainly a Chinese and Asian art historian, I I learned more about European and American art uh, from uh, studying Sherman Lee. Excellent. This also um, tells us a little bit about um, how Shamanli framed his kind of uh, scholarship, which, as as you just said, kind of speaks to a broader readership. And I think that's what you do particularly well in this book as well, which is incredibly detailed and full of information and yet written in an easily accessible and engaging way that w- will also appear, I think, to a broader readership. Um, which is important, of course, when studying a topic that might be rather um, foreign or strange, if you will, in an American context. Um, Now, in the introduction, you set the scene, so to speak, um, for your readers and contextualize the framework within which you are reading Sherman Lee's scholarship and legacy and why it remains important and relevant relevant for us today as well. Um, unfortunately, we, we, we won't be able to cover each and every aspect in this very detailed book, as I said, but there are numbers of, number of issues that I think um, we should address. In my view, the book is contributing to a growing body of literature on the history of collecting Chinese painting in America as well as Europe. And while there is, in my opinion, a considerable amount of scholarship on collecting and acquisition practices during the the first half of the 20th century, all the way up to Second World War, this book is is one of the first forays into the post-war era. Could you tell us a bit more um, about what prompted you to look at this era in particular, and also the person of Sherman Lee in particular? Sure. Well, I uh, found myself in Cleveland uh, in 2009. Uh, I moved to the city to uh, take a job, and I was excited about being able to work with the collection at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which has a fantastic Chinese painting collection. Um, But unfortunately, the museum was under construction, uh, building a new Asian wing for many years, uh, and much of the collection was off display and inaccessible for study. Uh, And so I was asked to contribute to a panel uh, by a colleague of mine uh, who works on the history of collecting. And I really wanted to do something with Cleveland's Chinese paintings. Uh, And I thought, well, let me look into how this collection of great Chinese paintings was put together. Um, And it was really my first foray into history of collecting and looking into dealers and acquisitions and prices and this whole uh, sort of economic side of, of uh, and market side of art history. And so I really started to fixate on um, several names that appeared in the credits in the Eight Dynasties catalog. And that is a show that was held in 1980 and 81, a joint show between the Cleveland Museum of Art and the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art, both of which have superb collections of Chinese painting. And they really put on this magisterial joint exhibition 
uh, at both institutions. Um, and that catalog is still really an important document in the history of the study of Chinese painting. And this catalog, unlike many catalogs, actually included the names of the private collectors and the dealers uh, involved in providing these objects. So instead of just a provenance of, you know, from the Yuan dynasty and the Ming dynasty and the Qing dynasty, which we're so accustomed to seeing on Chinese paintings because of colophons and inscriptions and seals, this catalog also highlighted uh, names uh, that have to do with 20th century collecting. And many of those names are still rather unfamiliar to people in the field. And the first name that stood out to me was Walter Hochstetter, a German expatriate uh, who was uh, Jewish, and he had a real fascination with China at a young age. Uh, we still don't know why, but he was fascinated with China and got the local bookstore in Augsburg where he grew up to order books on China and when he was in his 20s, he just decided, I'm going to go take a road trip to Asia for a couple of years. Um, and he did that. Um, but he was doing that in the 1930s um, when things were very difficult in Germany and in East Asia in terms of heading towards war. And he found himself in China um, when World War II broke out in Europe. And he had been making connections and of learning Chinese and looking into art and keeping really detailed records. But he really wasn't very active as a dealer until he realized that he needed to get his parents out of Germany. Um, they were Jewish um, and um, Kristallnacht happened and a lot of the people in uh, the city of Augsburg uh, were sent away and died. And so he really felt an urgency to get his parents uh out of Germany. And so he needed to raise money quickly. And so he started to be an art dealer in earnest, um, selling ceramics and Chinese paintings. And so learning about his background um, was very interesting for me. And I discovered a whole cache of correspondence and business records. The first, of course, was in the Cleveland Museum of Art Archives, which has a pretty substantive collection of correspondence with between Lee and dealers. Um, and uh, then also there was another collection of Walter Hochstetter's papers that is at the Center for Jewish History in New York City. And his um, descendants donated that material um, in uh, 2007, so very recently. And the material really hadn't been touched by anyone. Uh, and so it was really a fascinating um, process because the Cleveland Museum of Art had one side of the correspondence in many cases, uh, and then Hochstetter's files had the other part of the correspondence. And then in other cases, the Cleveland Museum of Art has a substantive archive on Lee and his relationship to dealers, but only after he became museum director in 1958. And his um, work as curator uh, of Asian art at the museum began in 1952, six years earlier. And so all of the correspondence from before he was director was not saved at the museum. And so the only way to really get at his history uh, and his activities before 1958 was really through 
dealer correspondence, business records, um, as well as through uh, personal correspondence that was um, saved by his family. So it was a really interesting uh, project to look into why he, what he collected and when. Uh, and many, many of the famous Chinese paintings um, in the Cleveland collection, he bought between 1952 and 1958, before he was director, uh, a huge number of paintings. Um, so this is a really important period that um, uh, before I started my research was really not it was really not obvious how to how to study this time. Hmm. Excellent. This is so fascinating. And I think we'll come back to um, to the provenance of, uh, of these paintings and, and, and the collection as well. Um, now, in, in, in chapter in the first chapter, you highlight the ways in which we're, we're kind of um, going chronologically uh, um, according to the chapters of the book. And in, in the first chapter, you highlight the ways in which Lee actually differs from most other American art historians and curators, such as Alan Priest, Howard Hollis, Lawrence Sigman, and John Alexander Pope, who almost all exclusively graduated from Harvard University and had spent some time in China and Japan during the early stages of their careers. Lee's opportunities, on the other hand, were tempered by economic, social, and political factors that led him to enroll as a doctoral student in the Department of Art History at Western Reserve University in Cleveland. I think partly due to the lack of access to primary source material of Chinese art, he completed his dissertation on American watercolor color painting. Despite these apparent setbacks, however, Lee managed to develop a deep, deep appreciation and understanding of Chinese art and built a network of curators, collectors, and dealers. I would like you, I was wondering if you could elaborate on these early developments in his career and how he managed to draw connections between Euro American art history and the arts of East Asia. Yes, well, um, Lee's path into Asian art is um, somewhat non-traditional. Um, almost all of the figures of that period who studied in the United States um, did so at Harvard because it was one of the few programs um, that focused on uh, Chinese art. And many of those um, individuals like Alan Priest, Howard Hollis, Lawrence Sickman, John Pope, were all about 10 years older than Lee. Uh, we tend to think of them as the same generation, um, but they sort of had a head start on their careers and they were able to spend time in China before um, the Japanese attack in Manchuria in the early 1930s, which really started to put a damper on the ability of scholars and students to go and spend time in China. And so Lee entered a doctoral program in 1938, probably the worst possible time to try and do research in Asia or Europe because of World War II. Um, and uh, many of the um, people that we know as important curators and museum directors actually were in, this, in the armed services um, during this period. Um, and Lee came to Cleveland to study, um, and he had decided to do so mainly because he had enrolled briefly as a, as a graduate student at the University of Michigan in art history. And what led him to do that is that he, his family was living in Detroit at the time, and he could commute there and pay in-state tuition. So it was convenient and it was affordable for him. 
Um, going someplace like Harvard was really not in the cards for him at the time for a variety of reasons that you suggested. And so while he was at um, Michigan, he came into contact with um, a, a teacher and a scholar, and um, he was kind of an old China hand, James Marshall Plummer. And he was mainly an archaeologist that worked on ceramics, also a Harvard graduate. Um, and so he was teaching at the University of Michigan, and Lee decided, okay, you know, I haven't studied Asian art before, so let me give it a try. Uh, and he signed up for one class, and uh, he was hooked um, pretty quickly. Um, and he spent a lot of time studying Chinese ceramics, also um, Buddhist art, particularly Buddhist art from Cambodia uh, and other places in Southeast Asia. And he got a real object-oriented um, education in that um, James Marshall Plummer had his own collection of Chinese ceramics, which are now part of the University of Michigan Museum of Art collection. And he would put these ceramics and shards underneath um, a blanket and ask students to identify what kind of wear the various pieces were based on touching them, feeling them, picking them up um, without seeing them. And so that kind of direct access to objects is something that's very rare in graduate education today, particularly with ceramics. Uh, and so this kind of hands-on education was something that Lee had from the very beginning at University of Michigan. And then when he moved to Cleveland, uh, there wasn't uh, an Asian art historian on the staff at Western Reserve University. This is the traditional European art. And so he um, spent a lot of time with Howard Hollis, another Harvard graduate, who was the um, curator of Asian art at the Cleveland Museum of Arts uh, starting in 1929. And he worked with Hollis um, on several exhibitions, including one on Chinese ceramics. So it just happened that his uh, very recent training with James Marshall Plummer was very uh, helpful to Howard Hollis and his exhibition that he did in 1940. So while Lee is having all this exposure to Asian art, particularly Chinese art, he's got to write a dissertation and he can't travel. <laughs> um, and he realizes that not being able to travel is going to be a challenge. Uh, so he talks with his advisor, who ends up being Thomas Monroe, who worked as a curator of education at the Cleveland Museum of Art. That's a position that doesn't exist anymore. Um, but at the time, curators of education taught classes to college students. And they also published um, their own scholarship. And Thomas Monroe was kind of an, um, an omnivore when it came to art. And he said, well, what can you do given these questions with travel? And so they decided that Lee could work on American watercolor painting. Uh, because he could travel to meet artists and see see works and collections in the United States, and also because Lee had established um, quite a good network um, with American artists and collectors and museums because he spent a lot of time at the Phillips Collection in Washington, D.C. during his undergraduate education. And so he met uh, Duncan Phillips. He saw exhibitions by John Marin uh, and other American watercolorists and was very familiar with their work. So it was kind of a natural shift for him to write his dissertation on American watercolor. 
And it was really a means to an end. He knew he had to get a PhD so he could get a job. Uh, and so he went ahead and worked on American watercolor painting. But if you read his dissertation, um, which is still available today from 1941, um, it's filled with references to Chinese and Japanese ink painting, um, specific paintings. It really sets up artists and and paintings as uh, models, as exemplars for American artists to follow. And so it's a really interesting uh, negotiation that he makes with um, writing about American watercolor painting, but with lots and lots of inclusions of uh, references to East Asian painting. There's okay. one more thing I wanted to say about, yeah. about his dissertation on American watercolor painting. His dissertation Great. in 1941 was actually the first dissertation written on American art, period, which is really surprising. Um, before that, before 1941, apparently all students in American doctoral art history programs wrote on European art. So even though we tend to think of American watercolor now as a very well-established uh, area of art history, at the time, um, people were not writing dissertations on American art. So even in that sense, Lee was a bit of a pioneer. And I mean, you did say you're not a <clears throat> scholar of European art in particular, but do you know whether the reception of um, his dissertation today still acknowledges the fact that he was the very first to do so? Uh, well, actually, I um, first realized this when I was reading um, an article by Wanda Korn in the Art Bulletin from several years ago, giving a survey of the history of American art uh, and what scholars and what exhibitions are important. and. Uh, I saw a footnote that said Sherman Lee was the first person to write a dissertation on American art. And of course, I did my due diligence and checked. And in fact, that was true. Uh, so uh, it was really kind of my um, trying to get more familiar with the field of American art as Lee was working uh, on his dissertation that led me to uh, realize that this was the first dissertation on American art. Hmm, great. Okay, um, let's move on, on, however, to chapter two, um, in which you recount Lee's experiences as a naval officer in the Pacific Theater during World War II and his first visits to China and Japan. But perhaps more importantly, you also detail his subsequent post at the East Asian branch, <clears throat> excuse me, of the Monuments, Fine Arts and Archives program. This chapter I thought was hugely fascinating, mostly because it is, again, one of the first forays into the activities of the and activities and achievements of the Monuments, Fine Arts and Archives program in occupied Japan. Could you tell our listeners a bit more about the East Asian branch of the MFAA, whose members are better known today as the Monuments Men, and how these experiences in turn gave Lee unprecedented access to um, study firsthand Chinese and Japanese works of art, and then how these informed Lee's understanding and appreciation of Chinese art. And then also <laughs> further how this um, stay allowed him to build, I think, build on an extensive network of personal friendship and professional contacts, which facilitated his acquisitions for the Seattle Art Museum during the late 40s and 50s, where he was at. Yes, you've given a really good overview of what I cover in, in chapter two. Um, this is a, a very dense chapter um, that relies a lot on intensive archival research. 
And I was very fortunate. And when I started to work on this chapter, I realized that um, many of the archival documents uh, that are associated with the Monuments, Fine Arts, and Archives um, program, both in Europe and the United States, were only declassified in the 2000s. And so a lot of the correspondence, the internal reports, uh, and all of that was still classified up until really quite recently. Um, And those documents were incredibly helpful in reconstructing who was involved with the creation of this East Asia branch, who was asked to join but didn't for a variety of reasons, um, which helped sort of figure out how we ended up with Lee uh, in in Japan. Uh, And I think the other really fascinating thing is to really look at this whole phenomenon of the Monuments Men, which most people associate with Europe. Um, and um, dealing with looted property uh, that the Nazis took from Jewish collectors and um, degenerate art and things like that, and really trying to discover where these things were, preserve them, in some case, return them to owners or museums. And this was taking place you know, much earlier during the war, so in the 30s and 40s, The program in occupied Japan is just that. It began after the war. Uh, And so there was a decision um, in the military and in the State Department that a similar program should be started in Japan. And once it was clear that there was going to be an occupation of Japan, that was why it was decided to have it in Japan rather than in China or Korea or somewhere else. One of the the first people involved in setting up the um, Monuments Men operation in occupied Japan is George Stout, who is a conservator from the Harvard University Fog Art Museum. And he had worked as a Monuments Man in Europe. And so he was kind of the bridge between what was happening in Europe and things getting up set up in Japan. And he learned a lot of lessons about how not to do things uh, when he was deciding on what kinds of things should be set up in Japan as opposed to in Europe. So certain things that they ran into trouble with, um, he sort of tried to um, alleviate those at the time. And so it was really just him in Japan. And he initially asked Lawrence Sickman, who was the uh, who later became the director of the Nelson Atkins Museum of Art and was the longtime curator of Chinese art from the 1930s and through through the 1980s at the Nelson. And Lawrence Sickman was already in China um, working for the Air Force, and so he was already in Asia and was an expert in in Chinese art, knew a little bit about Japanese art, and so um, Stout asked Lawrence Sickman to come over and help him set up the branch. Uh, and so he initially, Stout initially asked Sickman to um, be head of the branch, but Sickman had been in Asia for quite some time in the military and was eager to get back to the States and to his museum. Uh, and so he did not want to continue on in, in, in the Monuments Men in East Asia. And so soon after, um, Stout started uh, talking with Langdon Warner, who was a scholar of Chinese and Japanese art based at Harvard. And in fact, a lot of the students in Chinese and Japanese art of that era studied with Langdon Warner. 
And Langdon Warner has kind of a bad reputation in China uh, because of his entrepreneurial expeditions where he removed uh, objects from Dunhuang and other places um, in somewhat unscrupulous fashion. Um, However, in Japan, he is uh, much more highly respected and actually credited with saving temples in Kyoto and other places from Allied bombing. Uh, And whether that's actually what happened or not, he gets credit for it. And so he had a lot of pull in Japan. And so he was a very good person to get things working in Japan. So he really wanted um, to have uh, a Japanese art or Chinese art expert head up the Monuments Men division. Stout had to leave as well. And so they originally approached John Pope, who was still in China working, I believe, in the Marines as a translator. Um, And he was also eager to get back to the Freer-Sackler Gallery and to his duties there after spending so much time in Asia during the war. So he declined the position. Uh, They also asked uh, Robert Treat Payne at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, who was a Japanese art curator. And it's not clear why he didn't accept. Uh, It may have to do with something with illness, but he eventually did not accept either. And so then Warner went back and tapped his um, his students from Harvard and contacted Howard Hollis, who was in Cleveland. And Howard Hollis said, oh, OK, I can get leave from the museum. I can go over and do that. And he says, you know, you seem to have recommended this other Harvard man to be the the uh, my assistant to be director and, and technical advisor on, on collections. But I have another suggestion. How about Sherman Lee? I know him very well. He's been a curator in Detroit. He just served in the Pacific Theater. And we work together really well. And I think I think we should ask him. Uh, and so because of that, um, because of Sherman Lee's personal connections with Howard Hollis, he got through that Harvard wall. And he was one of the few Harvard non-Harvard men who ended up in the Monuments Men. Um, and unfortunately, a man named Sark- with the last name of Sarkissian, who ended up as a dealer in Denver, um, was the person who ended up not going. <laughs> um, but he seemed to have a very good career, so I don't think that really hurt him very much. Um, but that is why, you know, someone whose primary experience was with Chinese art, Sherman Lee, was asked to go to Japan is really because of his connection to Howard Hollis. Amazing. He really remained... Um... It seems from reading your book, um, his um, sort of uh, teacher and mentor throughout uh, Lee's career. Um, This, yeah, chapter is fascinating. And I think um, I should acknowledge at this point um, what you've said already, which is that you've uh, really done extensive archival research and this really shows throughout the book and and so reading all the footnotes even is hugely fascinating and you know all these files that that are available now <clears throat> and museums in the u.s is just hugely fascinating yeah, to I read and i think that- it's really um i i have to acknowledge a, a debt of gratitude of my own and that is when i started working on this book it really would have started with chapter three um which uh was in the 1950s Um, But in uh, shopping proposals for this book, a lot of people wanted to hear about earlier periods. And I was a little stymied as to how to do that. 
Um, but uh, as I was working on the book, I was able to find out that this um, Monuments um, Men um, uh, documentation in Washington, D.C., actually it's in College Park, Maryland, was newly available for study. And also I contacted uh, Catherine Lee Reed and the Lee family, uh, Lee's children, basically, and uh, told them about the project I was working on. And, you know, I was no one to them. And I said, you know, here's what I've been working on. I'm, I'm writing this book about your father and his collecting of Chinese art and his exhibitions. And I'd really like to talk to you about him. And Catherine Lee Reed, who um, has worked in museums uh, for much of her career and actually had been director of the Cleveland Museum of Art in the early 2000s, um, was really quite generous and invited me to North Carolina, um, where she lives. And uh, I spent many, many days and weeks uh, in her basement and in a studio next to her house. And she took out all her father's personal copies of catalogs and auction uh, catalogs with handwritten prices, um, some of his manuscripts, and most importantly, a series of correspondence um, from the entire time he was in the Navy, in the Pacific Theater, and the first uh, eight months that he was in Japan. He wrote to his wife every day um, and also wrote to his parents, and all of those letters were preserved. They're all handwritten. And when I first encountered them, some of them said Saturday. Um, so it was a bit of a job to try and put them in chronological order. Um, but with um, with Catherine Lee Reed's help, I was able to do that. And uh, I basically got to relive um, Lee's experiences in the Pacific and during his first eight months in Japan when he visited tons of private collectors and museums and um, collaborated with uh, a lot of Japanese scholars uh, and museum people. And you would think that it would all be about war, but in fact, it's all about Chinese art. <laughs> um, he's talking about specific people he met with, and when he's taking a break in Hawaii, he's meeting with you know all of these other curators, and he's seeing all these different objects. He's even still trying to buy things and send them on to Detroit to have them acquire them. He even teaches a course on art history on his ship for a while. Um, and talks about how bad the survey book that he's using is. Um, so he's he's just um, he's just all the letters are just filled with you know insider stuff about Chinese art and uh, specific people and objects. So it's it was really a a wonderful way to get at not only what he was doing but sort of the context and the milieu of the time uh, and what was going on. Why don't we? move on to chapter three, sure. um, in which you beautifully outline the ways in which uh, American museums acquired Chinese art in general and Chinese painting in particular in the post-war era, um, thus really taking over Europe's leading role during the first half of the 20th century. Now, that is, of course, um, putting aside Chinese and Japanese collections of Chinese art. Um, could you outline in, in a bit more detail what had changed um, in the collecting practices of American museums between the first half of the 20th century until the advent of World War II and after. Maybe by trying, um, by tying this into the ways in which Lee acquired paintings for the Cleveland Museum of Art at that point. Sure, sure. 
Well, um, as you know, um, before and after World War One. Um, Europeans really had a leading role in building Chinese art collections. The British Museum, the Musée Guimet, and the Berlin State Museums all had very strong collections of Chinese art and held major exhibitions in the 1920s and 30s, most notably um, the 1935 exhibition in London. Um, and a lot of these museums and their collections made Europe a hub for the study of Chinese art. However, after World War II, there were a lot of problems in Europe. Um, a lot of, you know, there was a lot of financial loss and destruction of capital. You know, millions of people were displaced or killed, um, and rebuilding infrastructure and cities really took priority over everything else. So there wasn't a possibility to really buy a lot of art um, by European museums after World War II. And the United States was in a very different position. It had attained sort of a more prominent place on the world stage, both politically and economically, after World War II. And unlike in Europe, there was financial capital um, among collectors and museums to buy uh, Chinese art at the time. Uh, so economic conditions um, were much more favorable in the United States um, after World War II. And that's not to say that American museums didn't collect uh, Chinese art before uh, World War II, but a lot of those collections were concentrated in just a few museums, like the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, which built its collection of Chinese art uh, in the 1880s through the 19-teens, primarily uh, of paintings and statues then the Freer Gallery of Art, which built its collection in the early 20th century um, and was established in the 1920s. And so those collections are still strong collections today, but they really were um, largely established in the early 20th century. Um, whereas collections like Cleveland and Kansas City, uh, and then in more recent times, uh, the Minneapolis Institute of Art, um, and the Metropolitan was a post-1970s uh, collecting institution, very late, um, much after Kansas City and Cleveland. So a lot of this, um, this changed the market. The other thing that was very important is a lot of scholars, um, sinologists in particular, left Germany uh, and came to the United States in the 1930s. So we often hear about rocket scientists and, and others who left Germany to come to the United States, but there was a huge group of sinologists that also came over. Um, and many of them became professors or curators um, during that period. And we also had a lot of um, Chinese art collectors and connoisseurs and artists who left China uh, at the end of the 1940s, um, as the communists were taking over China, people like C.C. Wong uh, came over, not necessarily with a huge collection that he brought with him, but with a lot of knowledge and connections to build a collection while he was based in New York. Uh, and so you have this sort of critical mass of people, of um, German sinologists, of people like C.C. Wong, connoisseurs and painters, and then a lot of men primarily, who had been in the Pacific theater during the war, um, who attained knowledge of Chinese art and culture, um, either just before the war or during their service, like Lee did. So you have this kind of critical mass of people. Um, there's money, there's the will. 
And so we have this sort of new wave of collecting Chinese art that begins after World War II, when a lot of these men return to their positions in museums in the United States. And so a lot of the collecting that Lee did for Seattle um, was actually taking place while he was in um, Japan, in occupied Japan. He managed to find an inside track to buy um, both Japanese and significantly a lot of Chinese art from Japanese collections in the late 1940s that went to Seattle. And he sort of had the only inside track to do that. Um, Then when he went to Cleveland in the early 50s, a lot of those Japanese connections to Chinese art were, were not available anymore. He ended up buying a lot of Japanese art from Japanese dealers um, throughout the 1950s for Cleveland and beyond. But he really switched to buying Chinese paintings that had been transmitted through Chinese rather than Japanese collections. So when I say transmitted, I mean you know paintings that were collected by Chinese individuals in China um, uh, rather than Chinese paintings collected by Japanese collectors that had been in Japan for sometimes hundreds of years, sometimes just a few decades. Uh, and so Walter Hochstetter was a key dealer who had access to Chinese paintings um, in Chinese collections. Another important figure who had this kind of access was Jean-Pierre Dubosc, who was a collector himself. And some of his uh, collection is in Europe. Uh, but um, several paintings from his collection are also in the Cleveland Museum of Art. So Lee really switched um, his buying from Japanese collections of Chinese art to Chinese collections of Chinese art. And that really uh, kind of changed the character of um, what was being studied in the United States. But let's move on to the to, to chapter four, um, in which you go on to explain how public taste and opinion on Chinese art in America was shaped uh, partly by landmark exhibitions, such as the Chinese art treasures, which toured the US from the National Palace Museum in Taipei, or Cleveland Museum of Arts, Chinese art under the Mongols, which looked into the arts of Asia, uh, excuse me, of China during uh, the UN uh, dynasty. American museums maintain their primary position as the worldwide center for the collecting, exhibiting, and study of Chinese art throughout the the 1960s. And Sherman Lee's survey book, A History of Far Eastern Art, is one of the one of the major contributions, I believe. And in this chapter, you come back to the book, which you reference at the very beginning as well. Now, why don't you tell our listeners a bit more about Lee's scholarship in particular, which favored a connoisseurial approach to the study of Chinese art, whilst also at the same time, taking into account the historical context and circumstances as well, which wasn't necessarily the case for all other art historians. True, very true. So I actually um, wrote a a separate book chapter on the Chinese art treasure show um, that I had been working on um, right before I started writing, doing the research for this book. And so I was spending a lot of time at the National Gallery Archives, um, excuse me, and the Smithsonian Archives in Washington, D.C., which had all the records for that show. Um, I also did some archival research at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston, um, and that sort of showed some of the negotiations for the show. Um, It was incredibly exciting when I found, um, 
I actually was given a transcript of uh, what James Cahill called the postmortem on the Chinese art treasure show, uh, which was a um, a gathering of collectors, scholars, curators, and a few lucky graduate students um, who got together in 1962 in New York, um, right around the time of the John Crawford Collection exhibition in New York. Um, and they basically decided to dissect the Chinese art treasure show, really focusing on paintings. Um, the show included a lot of other types of art, but primarily paintings. And so they literally um, sent out this survey saying, you know, grade all of these paintings, A through F, and there were these complicated systems of that Cahill came up with, with um, how to rank these paintings and how to rate them. Um, and then uh, everybody sort of contributed their thoughts uh, in advance, and those things were shared among a small group of people. And then during the, they had this, this debate um, where they would just sort of let loose on, you know, paintings were shown in slides and they just sort of let loose on them. And you got to see, you know, all the different opinions from people like, um, like Wen Fong, who was very much a young Turk at the time, who didn't think any Song Dynasty paintings were real, that everything we now think of as Song was in fact a Ming Dynasty painting. Uh, he changed his attitude in the 1970s when he became a consulting curator for the Met. Um, but we get to hear uh, people like Chu Tsing Li, who's very much in Wen Fong's camp, um, but other people uh, like Max Lair, uh, Lawrence Sickman, and James Cahill, Ashwin Lippi, and what the debates are uh, about these paintings. And uh, connoisseurship comes up over and over again. How do we tell if they're really Song paintings? How do we tell if they're good paintings by the particular artists or they're not so good paintings by a particular artist? Are they of the period, but not by this famous artist? Are they later copies? Are they forgeries? Um, and this is really an incredible education in uh, Chinese connoisseurship. And this transcript has been around for a few decades. It was, you know, done in the 1960s, but didn't really circulate at all except among Cahill students in the 1980s. Um, and a lot of the uh, research that I did for this book involved talking to people in the field of Lee's generation and, and a little bit um, and younger. And I was very fortunate to spend quite a bit of time talking to James Cahill before he passed away. Um, and he was incredibly generous with his time and with his files. Um, and he was giving me all kinds of great documents, uh, which have now become available on his website. So a lot of the documents um, that I used, such as this um, Chinese Art Treasures Postmortem Symposium uh, document is now online on his website, which is maintained by his daughter and, and friends of the family. Um, another, I don't think this is online, but he shared with me a court, a document of a court case that involves C.C. Wong, Walter Hochstetter, um, debating, um, they were disputing the exchange of paintings and Hochstetter felt like he got a raw deal from C.C. Wong and Sherman Lee was called on to testify on behalf of Hochstetter. And this is like a 300 page document uh, which is trying to explain to this hapless judge about Chinese painting connoisseurship. Um, and it's it's really a remarkable document, and um, it really gives insight into the field. And so a lot of these kinds of 
of, of documents that are associated with exhibitions or scholarly symposia that weren't really well known at the time have really um, provided a lot of insight into what was going on at the time. And although we tend to think of um, connoisseurship as a little bit passe in art history proper, though certainly not in museum work, um, this idea that you have to know or at least have some idea that the painting you're writing about is a 15th century something. Uh, if you don't um, have the ability to discern that, then anything else that you write is going to come into question. Uh, and so this is uh, a problem with some uh, scholarship today where there's um, they really a lot of scholars rely on museums to determine the authenticity and the dating of, of paintings. Um, as opposed to, or rely solely on colophons and inscriptions, which can be forged probably more easily than paintings. Uh, so there's a there was an issue with this, and Lee was really a very strong proponent of pictorial connoisseurship, so really paying attention to the painting um, rather than just relying on seals and inscriptions. And Cahill also was a big proponent of this kind of approach to connoisseurship. Whereas a lot of Chinese scholars um, tended to lead more towards colophons and inscriptions as validation. Um, and ideally, you want both to match, but more and more we're finding out that they don't. <laughs> um, actually, very recently, um, actually last spring, I was at the Metropolitan, and there's a painting there that um, Lee actually declined to buy from Walter Hogstetter right before he bought the very famous. Um, painting that does date to the Sung or Jin period uh, from Hulkstetter in 1953, one of his first exhibitions for Cleveland called Streams and Mountains Without End. But he offered another painting before that. It's called something like Buddhist Temples Amid Mountains or something. And eventually C.C. Wong bought it and it eventually was purchased by the Met in the 1980s. And it had always been claimed by um, C.C. Wong and Wen Fong as an early painting as a Sung dynasty painting. There was an attribution and signature of Yen Wen Gui. Uh, there's a lot of colophons that date back to uh, the Yuan dynasty. But Sherman Lee always thought it was a Ming painting based on the picture itself. Um, and very recently, last spring, there's a new label <laughs> uh, for this painting, which places it in the early Ming. Um, and basically the Met has, it's still a fabulous painting and the Met has concluded that the seals and inscriptions that appear after the painting are from a different painting, but they were added to this one at some point in its history. Um, so you really need both <laughs> to, to, to work on Chinese paintings. But I do wonder to what extent Sherman Lee was more prone to sort of um, aesthetic appreciation rather than textual, um, because he he didn't really have the languages under his belt Absolutely. in the same way that other post-war. Absolutely, he yeah. was. Uh, we tend to think of of people like Lawrence Sickman as fluent in Chinese, but fluency was very different uh, in that period. A lot of the fluency came from reading. Um, rather than speaking. Um, and even James Cahill, you know, had knowledge of Chinese, but much more in Japanese. Uh, but Sherman Lee made no secret of the fact he was terrible at languages. He muddled his way through French and German <laughs> um, very badly um, and really was not that talented um, at languages in general. And he knew that. Um, so he 
obviously focused on what he did best, which was pictorial connoisseurship. He did, um, he did have um, a lot of colleagues, scholars, and curators uh, that helped him to read inscriptions, um, provided readings of inscriptions for him. When Wen Fong was just a graduate student in the 1950s, he helped Lee um, with the Streams and Mountains Without End painting, which has a lot of colophons and inscriptions. Um, and James Cahill helped on other occasions. And then in the late 1950s, um, the Chinese art historian uh, Wai Kum Ho uh, joined Lee at Cleveland. They became kind of a dynamic duo. Lee um, uh, Ho was really an expert in Buddhist art and in Chinese historical texts. Uh, and so he was an ace at translating Chinese poetry and identifying seals. Um, and he was really uh, meticulous in his attention to detail. So it was a really good foil for Lee and his pictorial emphasis. I will say to Lee's credit that there is significant evidence that he taught himself how to recognize seals. So the book that was written by Victoria Kontag and C.C. Wong that came out in the 1940s, I found evidence that Lee got a copy of it around that time from a dealer. And I found uh, notebooks of his uh, still in the Cleveland Museum of Art and in his personal archives that showed that he kept an index of not only which famous collectors' seals he wanted to be able to recognize, but also where they should be on a painting if the paintings are genuine. Uh, and so he could recognize the seals of Liang Qingbiao, one of his favorite collectors, um, uh, and other famous collectors from the Ming and Qing dynasty, um, just by his visual recognition. Um, so he couldn't read a seal he'd never seen before, but if he had looked it up in the book um, and made notes on it, he could passively recognize it, which um, which is pretty good for someone who didn't know Chinese. <laughs> Very impressive indeed, yeah. He was much more of a visual oh, you- than a textual person. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you do hear that um, very often. Um, uh, collectors of ceramics today are able to uh, um, read and identify all the different uh, marks at the bottom of, of of Chinese ceramics, though. So, I suppose it's still practiced in some way today as well. <clears throat> um, right. So we are coming to an end. Uh, and moving on to a chapter five, uh, reorientations, in which um, you, we kind of move on chronologically into the 70s. And here you outline how changing regulatory and political conditions, both within the US and, of course, uh, in China um, as well, prompted Lee to, again, adopt a new acquisition policy um, and turning his eye, so to speak, to, to Japan once more. Um, what had changed during this period that led Lee to turn uh, to Japan in order to acquire Chinese art? Uh, yeah, so. That's a really great question. And it's one that I had because as I was going through Cleveland's collection in particular and looking at what he purchased in the 1970s, it's a very different character of paintings from what he purchased in the 1950s and 60s. There's a lot more Buddhist painting, particularly from the Sung Yuan and Ming dynasty. Um, there are a lot of paintings associated with Chan that he's purchasing in the 1970s, and not the sort of um, pure literati painting, the Wen Zheng Ming, the um, 
uh, Wang Hui, Wang Shimin, those kind of paintings, not the sort of individualists like Shi Tao or Jia Shibao. Um, he's not doing that like he was in the 50s and 60s. So I wanted to figure out why. And again, going back to eight dynasties, I start to see these Japanese names um, uh, as sources for these paintings. And many of the dealers are not familiar to me. Uh, so I went and figured out that, well, in fact, this started in 1970, exactly. Um, and so I found a letter that Lee had written to several Japanese dealers saying that the rules are changing and there's a new Export uh, Control Act that is coming into force that will allow me to come and buy Chinese art directly from you um, that I wasn't able to buy before. And so I spent a lot of time going through government regulations and taxes and all kinds of things trying to find out what this thing was that he was talking about. And Lee kept really close tabs on tax law and regulatory law and political conditions because it really affected collecting throughout the post-war period. And I deal with that pretty extensively in the book. But in this situation, I found out that the trading with the enemy law, which was um, put forward in the 19-teens in the United States, which was basically to prevent the United States from aiding the war effort of Germany um, uh, during World War One, um, so you couldn't trade with the enemy, uh, and then it was also used um, in the 1930s and 40s, um, and most importantly for Chinese art, um, it became a problem in the 1950s because in order for a museum to buy a work of Chinese art, that museum had to prove that that object had left China prior to 1949 because the United States was really not happy with the communists in China. They were afraid of communists, communism spreading throughout Asia and the Cold War, and this was a huge problem politically. And so um, if a European dealer or a Chinese collector uh, in Hong Kong anywhere had a painting or or a Japanese dealer in in Japan had a Chinese painting that they wanted to sell to the United States, there had to be some sort of affidavit or proof that this painting had left China before 1949. Um, and this was incredibly hard to get in many cases. Um, they turned to photographs, some scholars who had seen these things earlier, say in a Paris dealership of C.T. Liu. Um, and uh, Sherman Lee had actually pictures of things he took in Japan in in the nineteen in nineteen forty six and forty seven that showed that these Chinese paintings had left China, you know, before actually they'd been in Japan for hundreds of years. But there you go. And so a lot of Chinese paintings and Japanese collections could not be acquired by American museums or private collectors because of this trading with the enemy rule. And this was allowed to uh, kind of go by the wayside, and it was changed in the late 1960s, particularly in 1969, um, that it was now possible on a limited basis, a museum representative from the United States could go to Japan and buy Chinese works of art directly for the museum. It was not a situation where a dealer was allowed to go and buy paintings to bring back to Europe or the United States to sell. It was specifically for museums to send a representative to buy in Japan. 
And Sherman Lee had kept all his contacts that he established when he was in Japan in the 1940s. And he had been buying a lot of Japanese art through these channels. And he finally said, all these paintings I've wanted to buy from Japan are now on the table. Uh, and so he had a huge wish list um, and really um, got some amazing stuff in the 1970s from Japanese collections. And he could only do so because of the change in the Export Act and the enforcement in the trading with the enemy law. That was the reason. <laughs> Fascinating. And again, a great contribution, I think, to our understanding of provenance research, which we usually um, only associate in many ways similar to the Monuments Men, uh, to kind of establishing former Jewish owners of, of artworks in mostly Europe, in the in the European context. But here again, you show how this was already, uh, you know, done at an earlier stage um, in the context of East Asian art and art history. Yeah, and I think I'd just like to say one more thing, and that is that in, in the world of Chinese paintings, a lot of the almost a lot of the Chinese paintings, um, practically all of the Chinese paintings that Lee bought, whether they were from Japan or China or from other collectors, were in private hands when he purchased them. Um, it wasn't a situation that they were national cultural property um, or they were in museums already and he sort of took them out. These were private property. And uh, many dealers in Japan uh, and many private collectors really believe there should be an art market. Not everything should be sold. Uh, in fact, Japan is, uh, has amazing cultural property laws um, and has amazing Chinese and Japanese and Korean art in Japanese museums. Um, but this idea that there could be an art market um, that Chinese art and Japanese art could be collected and shown in museums outside of Japan and China was something that was okay um, at the time because these paintings were in, in private hands and a lot of the descendants wanted to get money. Um, and other uh, officials, particularly in Japan, um, who were on the cultural properties board when Lee was buying um, thought that it was important to have good examples of Chinese and Japanese art in European and American museums. Uh, so they, they wanted to let a few things out to the right people and places. And Sherman Lee was a good person and the Cleveland Museum of Art and Seattle Art Museum were good places for those things to end up in their opinion. Again, highlighting, I think, the importance of a good network of um, people, which uh, Lee certainly had. Um, but he wasn't on good terms with everyone. No. Um, <laughs> Definitely not. <laughs> which, um, <laughs> uh, which you also kind of um, elaborate on in, in this chapter. And, but I suppose, you know, you've... You've mentioned time and again the Eight Dynasties of Chinese Painting exhibition, which uh, indeed it was a collaborative exhibition between the Nelson Atkins and the Cleveland Museum of Art. And maybe also, um, you, you know, a time when Sigmund and Lee kind of um, became closer, um, partly because they both traveled to China together in 1973. Would you like to say a few more words on this um, landmark exhibition and uh, maybe also the personal connection, connections? Sure. Well, um, this idea for eight, the Eight Dynasties show was actually hatched by Lawrence Sickman, um, I think either during or shortly after um, he returned from, there was a 
about six-week delegation, the art and archaeology delegation to the People's Republic of China, um, which Lee was head of, and Lawrence Sickman was involved, James Cahill was involved, uh, Thomas Lawton, a lot of very well-known figures in the field. It was really the first chance for foreign scholars to go to China to see the huge uh, corpus of artwork still in China, because it had really been closed to everyone, if you weren't Chinese, uh, for, for many decades. And so this was really a revelatory experience for them. They got to see tons of things uh, that they didn't even know about or things they had only heard about. And he and Lawrence Sickman um, became closer friends. They were both older by this time, and maybe some of the earlier resentments had passed. Um, And the competition was a little bit less. Um, Lawrence Sickman was getting closer to retirement. Um, And Lawrence Sickman heard about an exhibition that Wen Fong was going to be putting on uh, at the Met. Um, And the Met's first real major Chinese painting exhibition was in the 1970s. That's when they finally started to get good things. Um, And Wen Fong was planning this exhibition. And Lawrence Sickman said, we got to outdo Wen Fong. We got to do something else. Um, And so Lee said, okay. Uh, And they came up with the idea to do a joint exhibition of the two collections of Chinese painting, which really complement each other quite well and are huge and important. Um, But there were some uh, problems with uh, um, the, I believe it was the Nelson or, or the Atkins. There were some problem with, oh gosh, let me put this another way. There, there were some stipulations in the donation of works to the Nelson Atkins that suggested they couldn't be lent. Uh, so lawyers had to go to work and get around this, uh, this prohibition, and eventually they did. But that delayed the exhibition um, almost 10 years. Um, so it was supposed to happen in the mid-70s, um, and it eventually happened in 1980 and 81. And it really ended up being a very important exhibition worldwide. Um, People from all over the world, from China, from Taiwan, from Japan, came to see the show. There were several uh, major international conferences on Chinese painting held at this time. Um, And the show is still incredibly uh, influential. Um, And in fact, subsequent uh, catalogs and exhibitions by Cleveland and the Nelson Atkins have really not eclipsed the scholarship in this catalog. Uh, so it's it's still a really important document of the field. And I think it probably wouldn't have happened earlier in Sickman and Lee's careers because they were more competitors with one another um, than friends. And I think both of them, you know, they loved uh, Scholars Rocks and they were you know, debating over which scholars rock they should buy to bring back and um, all this kind of thing while they, and some funny pictures of them riding in the back of cars and Sherman Lee playing ping pong. And they just had a grand old time and everyone I think became very close friends uh, there. And I think this led to quite a few um, of these kinds of collaborations in the seventies and eighties. Just on a side note for all listeners, most many of these pictures are actually in the book. So again, it's lavishly and beautifully illustrated and just hugely engaging to both read and look at and just appreciate. Um, I could honestly talk to you about the book and and, and this time period, uh, I think, for many more hours. But unfortunately, I'm afraid we're sort of coming to an end. Um, I would like to 
kind of, you know, in order to conclude and also refer back to the conclusion, um, like you to talk about why you think um, reconstructing this, you know, both the the professional career of one person in particular, and then also, um, you know, looking at the history of collecting in a broader sense, um, why this is important and uh, an important contribution to the study of art history or the study of Chinese art history. Um, and then maybe also co come back again to, to these different, you know, on the one hand, the formal and aesthetic qualities and, and this approach, um, more sort of connoisseurial approach uh, to the study of Chinese art and then an, an, a different kind of approach that's more contextualizing um, the paintings and, and, and yeah, the, the context in which they were made. Okay, that's a lot. Um, that, <laughs> uh, um, can you start again? Um, <laughs> I'm so sorry. sorry. Yes, of course. A lot to take in. No, I know, I know. I agree. I agree, and I also didn't write this down. So I guess um, <clears throat> talking about the conclusion, maybe. Well, basically, you. Uh, you can choose what you want to kind of say to, to wrap this up. Maybe you also feel like I ha there are things that I haven't um, mentioned at all that you would like to talk about. But I was, I think I, I was thinking about, um, you know, why you think it important to, um, to look at one person's uh, biography in particular, that of Sherman Lee Um and, and kind of collecting practices uh, in in general, how this is important and contributing to the study of Chinese arts and art history. Yeah, I think um, the the sort of impetus, the initial impetus for this book was really a small set of paintings that Lee collected in the 1950s for Cleveland. Uh, but then when I started working on other projects like the Chinese Art Treasure Show uh, from Taiwan in the 1960s, um, I started to see a lot of connections to where Li fit in the field of American museums, of uh, Chinese art, of uh, curators of Asian art. And um, he really seemed to provide a window into a lot of important debates um, about specific works of art or general debates about whether we should do Sinology or art history or both and which is better, which is worse. Um, and a lot of the debates about how to study Chinese art and Chinese painting in particular that were happening from the 40s um, through the 1980s. And so in writing this book, it, um, it initially started out as more of a, a study of Sherman Lee, but as I started to do more research, I realized that broadening the questions and really using Sherman Lee as a lens through which to answer some broader questions was a much more interesting way to go and, in fact, allowed me to include a lot more of the important events and exhibitions and situations and individuals involved with studying and exhibiting Chinese art um, from the 1930s through the 80s. So in general, you know, I was really using Sherman Lee as a lens to talk about how the cultural, political, and economic circumstances of the post-war era facilitated this new wave of collections, scholarship, and exhibitions of Chinese art in the United States. 
um, and looking at which individuals and institutions played major roles within this international network of dealers, collectors, and curators. Uh, many people in the auction world and who are dealers know a lot about these people, but very few art historians do. And the, a lot of the new generation of curators are not familiar with these people. Um, and in fact, the historiography of our own field, why we study and teach what we do and why we buy um, and acquire things for museum really um, was very much set in the post-war period around the world. Um, and so the United States is a really important um, sort of cog in that situation. We see China emerging in the 70s with sending exhibitions to the United States and Europe. We see a real turn towards archaeological study in China um, in the 1970s and 80s. But really in this earlier period, post-war period, the United States is really kind of the epicenter for things. And I really want to look at not only why Lee selected certain paintings and put together certain exhibitions, but what other curators were doing at the time and really get a sense of the whole sort of milieu of the post-war period. Because I think that's provided a lot of the legacy of what we have today in museum collections uh, and the works that we teach. Um, and in many cases, um, the works that get a lot of attention. Um, so I think that hopefully this book um, contributes to the historiography of the study of Chinese art, uh, Chinese painting, but also um, really gives us a sense of the individuals involved in making these things happen. We tend to think more about institutions being important, but it's really the individuals that are involved with particular institutions that have that led to important uh, exhibitions, important scholarship, catalogs, that kind of thing. So it's a wonderful cast of characters that I got to know during the research for this book. And uh, as you might surmise, I have quite a lot of material that I couldn't get into the book, um, particularly about the monuments men in, in occupied Japan. Um, so I'm hoping to um, use more of my research uh, in future book chapters or articles. Excellent. Wow, this sounds absolutely fascinating. And I suppose sort of answers um, another question that I would have had a final one, which is what it is that you're working on now? Is it indeed a book on the monuments men in monuments men in occupied Japan? It right it's now. <laughs> I actually when I, when I started, to, I'll be honest with you, when I started to work on this book, I was actually halfway through uh, a book on um, a Taoist deity called Junwu, the perfect perfected warrior. Uh, and in fact, that book got kind of put on hold uh, to work on on this book. And in the last uh, two years, I've really returned to that book, um, which is uh, going to be called uh, probably Imaging Perfection, uh, representing the Taoist god Zhongwu in late imperial China. Uh, and that is probably going to be my next book in the next few years. Um, and in the meantime, I'm uh, contributing... Um, essays to several edited volumes that are coming up on um, the history of Chinese art scholarship. There's uh, one that's being put out, uh, edited by Jason Guo at University of Maryland, who's also done several conferences on post-war collecting and scholarship. Um, and I do eventually hope to write a super long article or maybe even a public book of public scholarship on the monuments men in occupied Japan. Uh, I think it would be of great interest um, 
but that is a work of public scholarship that I sort of see doing after my my Taoist book. <laughs> hmm. Well, I am very much looking forward to all of these publications. Um, and thank you so much for this. Um, is there anything else that you feel like we haven't covered or you'd really like uh, listeners to know at this point about your book? One thing I would say is that something that Lee believed was that um, anyone could learn to appreciate Chinese art, that you didn't have to have specialized linguistic knowledge or be Chinese to appreciate Chinese art. He obviously believed that increased contextual knowledge, linguistic knowledge, cultural knowledge would help one to understand Chinese art on a more deep and on a deeper level. But he really believed until the end that you know, he really wanted to bring people into the Chinese painting galleries and the Chinese art galleries that had never been there before and have them really find something to enjoy and appreciate. Um, and, you know, this kind of low bar to entry is something that he really espoused as a curator and museum director, um, which is very different than a lot of, um, a lot of scholarship on Chinese painting in more recent decades, which really supposes um, a lot of prior knowledge. And I think in the reality of museums in the United States, um, in particular, in my experience, is that while there are um, Chinese Americans and people from the Chinese diaspora, people from Taiwan, Hong Kong, from mainland China, that occasionally are in major metropolitan museums like the Met in their Chinese galleries, um, there's also a large number of people that go to American museums with strong Asian collections that still need to be lured into those galleries, and they need mediation. They need um, they need some help, um, and not just a label, but they need encouragement um, and points of reference. And Lee was very good at that. And I think in museums that are not the, you know, in major cities like San Francisco or um, New York, um, there's a, still a need to really mediate Chinese art for American visitors. Um, and even for, you know, a new generation of Chinese students um, who don't really know that much about Chinese art. Um, and often they learn about Chinese art when they come to study science in the United States um, by taking an art history course. Um, so it's it, there's a real need to kind of mediate Chinese art for, for all kinds of viewers, um, although those of us in the field tend to think of the field as quite advanced and we don't have to argue that Chinese art is just as important as American and European art anymore. We do have to make that connection for people who you know aren't intrinsically interested in it. And I think that's what Lee did very well and what um, a lot of American museums are still trying to do today.